the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Fetka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? This is a particularly what the hellish week. Mark, what the hell? Well, first of all, who the hell do we have on the podcast? we got Ted Cruz on the podcast today. We're going to have a really interesting conversation with him. We talk a little bit about the current unpleasantness that is plaguing our country and also about China and Iran and the national security challenges we face. And true confessions. Don't forget that. Oh, and we have a a very interesting story for you at the very end of the podcast. Last question that Danny snuck in there, something to do with uh, serial killers. But anyway, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, So, look. There are riots happening all across the country. We had an American named uh, George Floyd who was brutally killed by a police officer. We all saw the video. We're all horrified by it. And a lot of people have gone to the streets to protest what was done to him, the police brutality, the racism that uh, that's involved in that. And then a lot of people have come in, some organized, like Antifa, some not organized, going in and have started looting businesses throwing rocks at the police, setting cars on fire and causing general mayhem. And so we literally have like the largest spread of riots in our country in decades happening all across the United States of America. What's what's going on, Danny? Well, you know, I think that we have a, a really, really sad story that we're facing up to. I'm betting that, that our listeners like you and like me and like Alexa are talking a lot about this at home. Yep. You know, uh, because, you know, many families are together now because of the coronavirus. And if this is something that good parents talk to their kids about. Police brutality is is real and racism is is real and those are really important moral, national, political conversations to have. This is an expression I absolutely despise, but I will use it nonetheless, a teachable moment for a lot of us. And what's happened, unfortunately, is that truly the disgraceful of the earth have exploited the murder of this African-American who had a police knee on his neck asphyxiating him for eight minutes. And they have on his back, on the backs of people who are fighting racism, they have decided that now is the moment that they should just be stealing crap, that they should be destroying people's livelihoods, that they should be trashing people's cars, that they should be honestly demeaning this important national moment in order to satisfy their lust for stuff. And not just their lust for stuff. There's also organized rioters called Antifa. They really are fascist movement that is highly organized. And they are they're Marxists. They're anarchists. They don't believe in rule of law. And they're exploiting this crisis to advance their agenda, which is to destroy our country and destroy capitalism. And so they're burning down businesses and they're throwing rocks at police. And, you know, who, who gets hurt by this? Who gets hurt, number one, are African-Americans. There was a woman on Twitter the other day that just touched my heart, Gigi Robinson. She had just started working at a Walgreens. And rioters came and burned down her place of the place of business where she worked. And she's now out of a job. And she tweeted out, 
I'm so hurt. I'm barely surviving. And not only do you all burn my job, Walgreens, down, but the grocery store in my neighborhood was looted for what? Now my mom can't get her prescription or food. How is this for us? You know, my heart breaks for the family of George Floyd. My heart breaks for any American who is worried that they might be the next George Floyd because of the color of their skin. But my heart breaks also for people like Gigi Robinson. You know, 40 million people put out of work during the pandemic, during the lockdown. And just as the lockdown is starting to lift and people start coming to work, within a week, their businesses, their places of employment are being destroyed. My heart breaks for those people, too. That's not fair. And we have to restore law and order here. We can't have a conversation about race when the country's burning. No, but you also undermine the very message that you seek to send out. That's why it is the worst form of exploitation. And you're right. It's the Antifa people are the top-down scum that are exploiting George Floyd. And then there are the bottom-up people who are stealing stuff, who are you know ruining people like Gigi Robinson's lives. So we talk about that a little bit with, uh, with Senator Cruz, but we also talk to him about those overseas who are laughing as they seek to deepen the divisions in our country, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, and how their information campaigns are using bots, using propaganda to try to stoke the flames. Look at what China is doing across the world right now. So they are, first of all, they are trying to cover up their complicity in the spread of this virus that has put 40 million Americans out of work and cost us trillions of dollars in lost GDP and and just cash spent, borrowed from our grandchildren to cover the costs. These riots are giving them a great excuse to do that. And at the same time, China is using the, the virus to crack down on democracy in Hong Kong, attacking vessels in the South China Sea of our allies, threatening Taiwan. And this is like a gift to the Chinese Communist Party, these protests. It just shows, you know, one of the things we've talked about on the podcast a lot is, Danny, is how the world is interconnected, right? And for a while, people didn't realize the fact that the existence of totalitarianism in China affects our lives here. Now we've seen that because the Chinese communist regime lied about the virus and allowed it to spread over here. But the same thing is that that the way we conduct ourselves in this country has an impact as well because they can exploit those kinds of things. And they see this as an opportunity to hurt America while she's down, while we're convulsed by these riots. So, you know, what we do here affects foreign policy just as much as what China does can affect our health security. You're totally right. We cannot pretend to ourselves that what happens here doesn't matter the world over. And it makes me ill to think that people in Beijing or Moscow or Tehran think that they have the right to lecture the United States, which notwithstanding everything that we've seen going on, notwithstanding the fact that we have plenty of room for improvement, plenty of room to get better as a country, is still far and away the country in which most people in this world would rather live All right. So we're super lucky to have Senator Ted Cruz with us today. In addition to having his own podcast, uh, The Verdict, which we uh, commend to you, he is probably well known to all of you. Quick bio, lawyer, something I didn't know. The first Hispanic to clerk for a chief justice of the United States, which is a a pretty cool thing. United States Senator from uh, Texas and valiant grower of beards. (laughs) Here's Ted Cruz. 
All right, Senator Cruz, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Well, you know, we're in the middle of what none of us expected, uh, which is uh, riots all across the country over the uh, death of George Floyd. You have a lot of legitimate protesters out there who are trying to march in solidarity. And then you have a lot of people out there who are taking advantage of this to wreak violence and destruction. Give us your take. What's happening? It's horrifying what we're seeing. I mean, first of all, you have George Floyd's death. Most of us by now have seen the video. What the police officer did there was completely wrong. It was police brutality. It was grotesque. He kept his knee on, on Mr. Floyd's neck for, for eight full minutes while, while Mr. Floyd was handcuffed, while he was incapacitated. And I think it is the right thing that the U.S. Department of Justice launched a civil rights investigation. Uh, I think it's the right thing that the prosecutors have brought a homicide case based on the evidence. There's no legitimate law enforcement purpose for what happened to George Floyd. And I think people all across the country rightly and understandably exercise their First Amendment rights to speak out against racial injustice, to speak out against police brutality. But then I think violent criminals cynically decided to exploit and take advantage of those protests and began engaging in looting, began engaging in violence, began engaging in assaulting police officers and burning police cars and murdering police officers in burning our cities. And it is, it is horrific. It's something our country has not seen on, on this scale in my lifetime. And I think we need to stop it now. I think it's incumbent on president, the attorney general, governors, mayors, police chiefs to stop the violence and keep people safe. And, and we need to use every law enforcement tool we have to prevent these criminals from jeopardizing people's lives. Well, they're not just jeopardizing people's lives. They're also undermining the very cause that people went out to protest for. Because by underpinning legitimate protests with riots, with thievery, and with, as you said, with murder, they are discrediting you know, the importance of speaking out against that police brutality. So what do we need to do as a country? Let's all agree, and I, you'll, you're not going to hear any dissent from me and Mark, about the need to press back on rioters and to address that with all appropriate force. What should we be doing? How can we stop this from happening in the future? Well, our journey towards justice has been a, a, a rocky journey from the beginning of our country's history. Our racial divisions have been real and profound. We were a country that that started and for centuries maintained the evil institution of slavery. And and we fought a a bloody civil war with 600,000 Americans who lost their lives in significant part to to expunge that original sin of America and, and, and to end that abomination. And In the decades since, we've seen Jim Crow laws, we've seen the Ku Klux Klan, we've seen both explicit discrimination and injustice and also implicit discrimination and injustice. But but given all of that, I also agree with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who, who, who said the arc of history bends towards justice. And our country was founded on a promise of equality. We didn't always honor that promise, but we have been on that steady journey. And I think calling out the law needs to protect every American, regardless of skin color. It needs to protect black people and white people and Hispanic people and Asian American people and everybody and protect everyone fully and fairly. You know, anytime you have a shooting involving a police officer in in today's 
politicized world, there are players that immediately blame the cop, immediately demonize the officer. I think that is it's very unfair. I think it depends on the facts and circumstances of what actually happened. In this instance, we have a video of, of what happened, and, and there's no legitimate law enforcement justification. I've spent a lot of my life in law enforcement. There's no reason when Mr. Floyd is gasping for, for breath and pleading for his life for the officer to keep his knee on his neck and in the way that he did. But I think highlighting it, I think policies, I think training, but I also think not demonizing cops. Right now, it is police officers who are protecting minority communities, who, who, who are standing in the way, stopping the rioters from burning people's shops. And by the way, most of these communities that are being terrorized are minority communities. One thing you, you said a minute ago that I very much agree, these violent rioters, what they are engaged in is racism because, because they are attacking... Destroying and burning minority communities is not an act of racial justice, and, and it is cynical trying to co-opt a peaceful protest and use it for your own violent and criminal ends, and, and, and its effect is, is bigoted and racist, what the violent criminals are doing. Well, we just had a uh, St. Louis police captain, David Dorn, was shot and killed by looters yesterday. He's an African-American, and uh, his life matters too. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, the, the pandemic lockdown really hit the African-American community. First, the virus hit the African-American community disproportionately, but also the job losses. And a lot of these people had just come back to work, were just getting their, their lives started again. And then these looters came in and destroyed their their homes and their I mean their places of business where they could where they were had work and now they're out of work again. I mean, this is really not just tearing our part country apart racially, but it's really doing great damage to the African American community. You are absolutely right and and unfortunately you've got too many elected politicians who are who are playing politics with this, who who have decided it is beneficial to them politically not to stop these riots. And you've also got organized groups like Antifa that, that, that are helping fuel the violence. And for two years, I've been calling on the president to designate Antifa as a domestic terrorist organization. And thankfully, this past week, the president announced he was going to do that. That, that, that has, is a long time overdue. Antifa sadly has fueled far too much violence already, but this past week has really been the culmination of Antifa's violent terrorist agenda. So one of the things that we've seen is that these images of violence that we're seeing are being exploited by our enemies around the world. China has been particularly aggressive in promoting these uh, these images and using it for propaganda to say, uh, look, look at all the chaos in America. Talk to us a little bit about how our enemies are taking advantage of this uh, situation. Well, China, I just saw yesterday where one of their senior officials tweeted out that America needs to do more to stop racial injustice, which, which is a little... Unbelievable. Weird. Tell that to the Uyghurs. You know, and, and that's ex exactly right. One million Uyghurs right now are in concentration camps in China, are facing torture and abuse and in some instances murder. We need to have... I actually think, you know, if you look at the coronavirus pandemic... I believe the most significant foreign policy consequence of this pandemic it, it is going to be a fundamental reassessment of our, our relationship with China. Well, it's been a long time coming. The question, I think, for a lot of us looking at the dysfunctionality of this relationship and how far it's gotten away from us over the years is, 
what we can do. You know, if you look at the amount of legislation that's been introduced, it's, I mean, first of all, it's legion and it's all over the map. So, you know, as you, you've, you've talked a lot about this and I think you've thought a lot about it, what are the right steps that we should be taking? Because, you know, it's not like we should be concerned about buying plastic shoes or toys from Kmart that were made in China, but there are things that we need to be less dependent on. What should be our priorities here? Well, as you mentioned, there are lots of different parts of this problem. And, and I'll, when you talk about the legislation or legion, I, I'll plead some guilt to that. I think I've <laughs> about a dozen bills on this topic. So, uh, you know, I apologize to the trees that have been slain as we're preparing these bills. Look, this is a complicated problem. Let me take several components of it. Let's start with the pandemic itself. The Chinese communist government bears very real and direct responsibility for the over 300,000 lives that have been lost to the coronavirus pandemic. There are serious and real questions about the origins of the virus. We know that two different Chinese government labs in Wuhan were studying coronaviruses derived from bats. We know that State Department internal wires raised concerns before the outbreak that the shoddy security in these labs would lead to a global pandemic. And we know that the Chinese government destroyed all the samples in the labs as the pandemic was starting, which, which certainly is conduct that evidences that they're trying to hide something. Regardless of the origin, what we know for a fact right now is that China actively, aggressively, vigorously lied and covered up the coronavirus outbreak. You look at the heroic whistleblowers in China, physicians, journalists who spoke up, who tried to draw attention in December of last year of 2019, tried to draw attention to the coronavirus. And the Chinese government, they arrested them, they persecuted them, they silenced them, they forced them to recant their stories. Any responsible government would have stepped in, would have sent public health professionals, would have quarantined those who were infected. And there's a very real possibility this could have been contained as a regional outbreak rather than a global pandemic. But China deliberately lied and and the cover-up, and so one of the steps we need in terms of what to do going forward is we need a careful, full, complete, and credible accounting of China's responsibility for this pandemic, how they covered it up, what the origin of the virus was, And I think that's only going to come with concerted international pressure led from the United States, but across the world. So that's one component, is understanding their responsibility and and quantifying and detailing it with clear and objective evidence. A second thing this crisis underscored is the vulnerability we have in our supply chain, and in particular when it comes to critical infrastructure. Let's take, for example, medical equipment, PPE, masks and gloves and gowns very large percentage of the PPE in the world is manufactured in China. They have control of it, and we are dependent on them for it. Not only that, pharmaceuticals. The Chinese government, as a concerted strategic matter, decided to target critical pharmaceuticals, life-saving pharmaceuticals, to go after them in the U.S. and to drive out of business American production of pharmaceuticals. And right now, a very large percentage of pharmaceuticals we rely on and the ingredients for pharmaceuticals we rely on are manufactured in China, whether it is antibiotics or blood pressure medicine or heart medicine or cancer medicine or Alzheimer medicine or antidepressants or anti-anxiety medicine uh, or vitamins. And in the midst of this crisis, at least one state-controlled newspaper in China 
directly threatened to cut off pharmaceuticals to the United States as a tool of economic warfare. You're literally threatening Americans' lives by denying needed life-saving medicines. I think it's completely unacceptable that America remains vulnerable, that allows millions of Americans' lives to be dependent upon the whim and discretion of the Chinese Communist government. So we need to work to decouple our economy from China, and in particular to decouple the critical infrastructure, the life-saving medicines that we need so that we're not dependent and vulnerable to the Chinese Communist government. So let's talk about uh, China's responsibility a little bit. So you, we've got uh, something like $2.6 trillion that we've spent to make up the lost revenue and paychecks of Americans who've been put out of work, 40 million Americans thrown out of work, businesses destroyed. There's some statistics I saw that something like 40% of the job losses may end up being permanent, losing billions and billions of dollars in GDP every day that this lockdown has gone on. How can we hold China accountable for that? And do you support stripping them of sovereign immunity so that American citizens and American businesses can sue for uh, damages? Let me take those each piece of that. I think the first step is getting a clear accounting and understanding what their responsibility was. I think a second step is legislation that, that I've introduced that focuses on their cover-up. And I've introduced harsh sanctions on Chinese officials who engaged in censorship of coronavirus and critical health-related information. You know, we've always thought of censorship as a human rights issue. Now we see that it's a public health issue and a national security issue as well. So that is another step in terms of directly penalizing those Chinese officials who are responsible. There's obviously a lot of discussion about going after Chinese assets, waiving sovereign immunity, trying to litigate directly. And, and I understand every bit of that sentiment. I have to admit I've got some real caution uh, because if we go down the ro that road, the next step we are going to see from enemies of America is they're trying to do the same thing to us. Aha! That's what I say. I'm so happy to hear you telling Mark that. <laughs> <laughs> we did a whole episode on this. I was on the other side. <laughs> look, look, I, I, I yield to no one in how much I despise commie bastards. Uh, <laughs> And if we could go and just seize their assets and have that be the end of it, I'd do it in a heartbeat. But it isn't complicated that the next day after we do that, we're going to see American company assets all across the world threatened with being seized. And at the end of the day, we have greater vulnerability to that than they do. And so that, you know, anytime you're using a tool to escalate, you want to make sure you're doing it in a way that doesn't hurt America more than hurting the other guy. And so I, I actually think we don't have to answer the question of the remedy first, that there is real value to quantifying, to, to providing transparency. The, the Chinese, I think, are quite susceptible to global pressure. And if we can detail credibly what their responsibility is, then I think there's much more likely to be real and meaningful remedies that stop short of simply the U.S. government seizing Chinese assets wherever we can find them. We've got a ton to press in and not a lot of time. And I want to talk to you about Iran and we want to talk to you about elections this year. But one last thing, getting to what my kids say is my favorite topic, which is Tom Cruise. Um, <laughs> you focused in yet another piece of legislation on Chinese manipulation of U.S. media, both 
pressuring Hollywood to toe the Communist Party line on issues that they care about, but also using U.S. radio to propagandize for communist China and no one being the wiser. Just talk a little bit about that and then we'll hop over to Iran. Sure. Well, when it comes to propaganda, the Chinese communist government engages an enormous amount within China, but they also engage in an enormous amount on on the global stage. And then one of the areas in which they engage in rampant propaganda is Hollywood. And you look at major Hollywood studios now, access to the Chinese market represents big, big bucks, millions of dollars. And as a consequence, we are sadly seeing pretty much every major studio willingly allowing the Chinese government to censor American movies. Now, I'm I'm not talking about what China says. I'm talking about American movies produced in America. And Hollywood is going along with letting them censor it. So, So some examples. Bohemian Rhapsody, fabulous biopic of Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen. They willingly edited out scenes from the movie that show Freddie Mercury as gay because the Chinese government didn't want to acknowledge that he was gay. How the hell do you tell Freddie Mercury's life story without acknowledging he was gay? It was an important (laughs) part of his life. And what's funny is, you know, these Hollywood producers like to virtue signal what great champions they are for free speech, and yet they'll happily erase out major parts of Freddie Mercury's life and let the Chinese censors change it. I'll give another example, and it's the one, Danny, that you pointed to, which is Top Gun, probably the greatest Navy recruiting film ever made. Yep. I think it also drove up beach volleyball by big numbers. (laughs) Top Gun, they're making the sequel. It's coming out, I think this December is when it's expected to be released. And to appease the Chinese censors, they changed Maverick's jacket. And in particular, what they did is in the original movie, Maverick's jacket had the Taiwanese flag on the back and it had the Japanese flag on the back. They took them both off. They didn't want to upset Mother China. And so Taiwan was erased. Japan was erased. And think about for a second what that message is saying. Are we really saying that Maverick is scared of the Chinese communists? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, So what do we do about it? Well, the answer in terms of what to do about it, I filed a bill called the Script Act that says that U.S. government assets will not be provided to assist filmmakers in making a film if those filmmakers are going to allow the Chinese communist government to censor the film. And the U.S. government all the time provides assets that are used in films. Think about all the movies where you see jets, where you see Navy ships, where you see... DHS equipment, where you see planes. I mean, we're talking thousands of movies where the U.S. government assists in, in particular, making hard assets available. And I don't think we should use government force to stop Hollywood from going along with censorship, but there's no reason the federal government should facilitate their empowering the Chinese censors. And so the Script Act is an effort to stop that. Just as an aside, you are a master of naming bills <laughs> because I'm just looking at some of these bills that you have. You have like the the Script Act, which is uh, Stopping Censorship, Restoring Integrity and Protecting Talkies Act. Uh, you've got the <laughs> Offshoring Rare Earths Act, which is the OR Act. <laughs> you've got the Blocking Evasive Attempts to Manipulate Signals Act, which is the Beams Act. I just want to commend you as a former Senate staffer. <laughs> On your bill naming skills. And Mark, you can appreciate this as a former staffer. As as much as I would love to take credit, I will say I have 
very talented and creative staff who come up with those titles, and I usually laugh enthusiastically and, and generally sign off on it, but it, I, I can't claim credit for, for any of those creative acronyms myself. Well, well some, someday you have to give us the ones that are uh, on the cutting room floor. <laughs> um, I will say there's, there's a bill Dan Sullivan and I have talked about several times concerning North Korea that spelled out um, an expletive towards Kim Jong-un, and I'll just say it ended with you. All right, Mark and I are going to spend the entire intro just trying to figure out what that one is. So as threatened, let's talk a little bit about Iran. You've actually been a critic of the administration's policy on Iran. You've, on more than one occasion, suggested that the Trump administration has been too soft on Iran. We're in the middle of the administration trying to push on snapback sanctions. They just cut off a bunch of waivers. Where are they going wrong? Well, they're headed in the right direction. It just has been not always smooth getting there. And so, uh, look, let's rewind three and a half years, beginning of the Trump administration. We, we come in in 2017. Two biggest foreign policy decisions that are made early on, and I think they're both interrelated. The first one was the decision to move our embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. In the Trump administration, both the State Department and the Defense Department vigorously argued against it. Rex Tillerson... Jim Mattis both passionately said, no, this will inflame the enemies of Israel. It will inflame the enemies of America. We shouldn't do it. I leaned in hard with, with the president directly, battled internally in the administration. And at the end of the day, President Trump agreed with me, moved the embassy. I think it was incredibly important. I was there the day the embassy opened, the 70th anniversary of the creation of the modern state of Israel. Part of the reason I think it was so important, and this is the case that I made to the president, is that moving the embassy would be seen and heard by our friends and enemies as an unequivocal statement that America will stand up, stand with our friends, and stand against our enemies. And I do not think it was coincidental that the week we opened our embassy in Jerusalem is the very same week that the Trump administration announced they were pulling out of the disastrous Obama-Iran nuclear deal. That's the second big, big foreign policy decision in the Trump administration, And it was a bare-knuckled battle with the exact same battle lines. Both state and defense, Tillerson and Mattis, argued vociferously that we should stay in the deal. I argued vociferously on the other side. Now, pause for a second and reflect. The Iran deal was an area that Trump and I explicitly disagreed with on the campaign trail. When we were running against each other in 2016, I pledged that if I was elected on the first day in office, I would move the embassy to Jerusalem, and on the first day in office, I would rip the Iran deal to shreds. Trump disagreed with me on the Iran deal. He said he was not going to rip it to shreds. He was going to renegotiate it instead. And this was one of the sharpest, consistent foreign policy differences throughout the campaign. Fast forward to the Trump administration. I made the case vigorously and repeatedly to the president. He ended up agreeing with me and pulling out of the deal overruling both state and defense. I think that is the single most important foreign policy decision that has been made in the entire Trump administration. After we pulled out of the deal, there were still a whole series of waivers in place, which you guys know about. The most important of those was the oil waiver. We had a waiver that allowed Iran to sell about a million barrels a day of oil, primarily to China and India. And that was the principal revenue source that was funding the Ayatollah Khamenei, that was funding terrorism against America. 
there was a battle within the Trump administration about whether to end the oil waiver. State, once again, on almost every one of these, state has been on the wrong side of the issue. State argued, no, don't end the oil waivers. It'll cause the global price of oil to skyrocket. Department of Energy, to their credit, took the other side and said, yes, end it. There's plenty of oil in the world. It's not going to cause prices to skyrocket. I engaged both publicly and even more vigorously privately and said we should end the oil waivers. The president agreed. And by the way, state was wrong and energy was right. Oil prices did not skyrocket. So what state was saying was just demonstrably false. There were the civilian nuclear waivers. As you know, for two years I've been pounding on the Trump administration, particularly state, Foggy Bottom, at every stage has resisted doing the right thing, but they have eventually, and this has been in large part because the president has overruled them, we've ended the civilian nuclear waivers now. When I started focusing on them two years ago, state was fully dug in on preserving them. You mentioned, Danny, now snapback. I am hopeful that we will exercise snapback, that we will reimpose sanctions, worldwide sanctions on Iran. State has been mightily resistant. I've been publicly calling for us to exercise snapback. I think there's a good chance the Trump administration will do it, but getting them there has taken vigorous encouragement and vigorous persuasion. Why do you think that is? Um, I think there are a lot of career folks at state. I think there are a lot of career folks at Treasury who, frankly, are supporters of the Iran deal and want to see it come back. They want to see Trump lose. They want a Democratic president, and they want to reinstate the Iran deal. And I, and I think they're digging in and fighting at every stage. And a lot of this has been even smaller trench warfare. So I'll, I'll give an example. Some of your listeners, you guys are very savvy and well-informed foreign policy observers, and that's true of many of your listeners, but not everyone may be following this day-to-day. So the snapback provisions of the JCPOA, which was the Obama-Iran deal, provide that any of the original signatories can snap back, in other words, reinvoke the global sanctions if Iran fails to meet its obligations. Iran has plainly failed to meet its obligations. Now, we're no longer a party to the agreement, but the terms of the JCPOA say an original signatory could invoke snapback They don't say anything about still being an active party to the agreement. What I knew was that the State Department, the legal advisor's office, had prepared an opinion that concluded that the U.S. could invoke the snapback sanctions even if it was no longer a party to the agreement because it was an original signatory. That legal analysis from from the legal advisor was kept confidential. They didn't want to release it publicly. We knew about it. As you know, in the Senate, we have all sorts of levers to encourage an administration to move. (laughs) And so last year, they wanted to nominate a new Deputy Secretary of State, Steve Began, and I placed a hold on on the nomination. I said, I'm not going to let the nomination go through. And it was the State Department was apoplectic. And they were like, what? Why not? What? Why would you possibly do this? I said, look, it's very simple. Make public the legal advisor's opinion that the U.S. could invoke snapback, and I'll lift the hold. They're like, well, we don't want to make that public. I said, okay. And they said, but then we won't have a deputy secretary of state. I said, okay. (laughs) And they kind of had a primal scream, and then they made the legal analysis public, and I lifted the hold, and Steve Biggins, the deputy secretary of state. 
Well, Steve is a uh, fellow former staffer on the Helm Center Foreign Relations Committee with us, so he's, he has a good appreciation of those tactics. Let's let's turn to politics for a second. What The Republicans have a lot of seats up in the Senate. Donald Trump is uh, is running for re-election in between COVID and now the riots and everything. We have no idea what's going to happen there. What happens if the Democrats get those levers that you described back in their hands and we have a House run by Nancy Pelosi, a Senate run by Chuck Schumer, potentially without a filibuster, and Joe Biden in the White House to sign the bills. What are we looking at here? I think the consequences would be spectacularly bad for the country. In terms of substance and policy, this is not your father's Democratic Party. This Democratic Party has been, I think, fully radicalized. And some of that is a response to Trump. They hate Donald Trump so much that it, it, it has driven them over the edge. And, and listen, I, there are things Trump says and does that I don't agree with and I don't like. And, but I think the, the, today's Democratic Party, just a few years ago, Bernie Sanders, for example, was a fringe character in the Democratic Party. In fact, he wasn't even a Democrat. He was a socialist. Now, most of the Democrats openly embrace socialism. I, I think if, if, if we see a bad election in November, if the Democrats take the White House and if they win by any sizable margin... They will keep the House, and they'll likely take the Senate, if they're winning. If that happens, I think you will see massive tax increases. I think you will see the Green New Deal, massive regulations on energy destroying millions of jobs. I think you will see, on foreign policy, we'll go back to the Obama-Iran deal. I think we will go back to growing antagonism towards Israel. I think we will go back to an embrace of communist China. I think we would see, look, there's an old phrase, personnel is policy. You know, imagine for a second, Treasury Secretary Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> I think that's a very real possibility in any Democratic administration. Imagine for a second, EPA Administrator Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. I think that's a very real possibility. Uh, the radicals have been unleashed. By the way, I think if the Democrats win the White House and the Senate, they will end the filibuster. I think you will see a massive amnesty plan because they will try to lock in an advantage at the polls as long as they can. I think you will see justices who are radical and committed to undermining free speech, religious liberty, the Second Amendment, our fundamental rights. And the thing that's scary is I, as I look at the, this election, I think November is unbelievably volatile. I, I think th that whole outcome I laid out is entirely possible. I also think it's possible that Trump gets reelected by a big margin, that we keep or grow our majority in the Senate, and that Republicans take the House. And, and it really depends on the next six months how these multiple crises that are playing out in our country, how they in fact play out, how... The coronavirus pandemic plays out, how the economic crisis plays out, how the, the rioting and violence plays out. And, and, and if we're headed in a good direction, we could have a terrific election. If we're heading in a bad direction, we could have a, a really, really bad election. So, Senator, we're going we're gonna to let you go and vote. But you, know, you have your own podcast. The verdict. I commend it to everybody who hasn't heard it. Really, a great listen. And I know that you understand how tough it is for a plucky little group of people from a think tank in Washington to get their own podcast up moving. So, I think you have an opportunity to really help us out here by, <laughs> by, by, by giving us a blockbuster confession that 
we can trumpet out to bring in new lessons. Is there uh, is there something beginning with a Z that you'd like to tell our listeners? Well, I will say. <laughs> Sorry. When I was campaigning, some high school kids showed up at an event with a sign that had written on it the question, "Are you the Zodiac Killer?" <laughs> And I have to admit, I stepped over to that young man somewhat ominously and said, son, if I were, would you really want to be asking me that question? (laughs) On that threatening note, thank you so much for sharing time with us, especially at this time uh, in our country. We've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for the hard work that you do. And everybody head out and listen to, to The Verdict with Ted Cruz. It's a great podcast. Thank you, Senator. Thanks, guys. This was fun. So, Danny, we had the Zodiac Killer on our podcast, and we didn't even know it. <laughs> I, I, I still, you know, Ted Cruz is a formidable guy and uh, and scary to some. So, you know, when, when this whole Zodiac meme became a thing, I got to say, it increased my respect for him a lot. There is nothing I like more in politics than somebody who is able to laugh at themselves, because God knows there are, what, like three four of those people in Washington, D.C. <laughs> so, yes, there he was, the Zodiac Killer. He also was a, an incisive and an excellent legal mind and agreed with me about the whole question of, 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 of whether we should... latch on to that. I know. Well, the, question, the question of suing China, Your victories is, are so rare that when you have them, you have to, we have to celebrate, right? Uh, well, I wouldn't put it quite that way. But yeah, look, I mean, he, he is emblematic of the steam that's behind doing something on China in the Senate and the House. And I think that's probably a good thing. So here's the question that I we didn't ask him because we ran out of time, but I'll ask you. Are we heading to a Cold War with China? I think we are. I mean, the news, most recent news that China's not going to allow U.S. flights to land and that the Trump administration is retaliating by not allowing Air China to land in the United States is kind of classic Cold War playbook stuff. Yeah, I, th- I think we are. And I think it's, uh, you know, we didn't start the Cold War the first time when it was the Soviet Union. It was uh, Soviet aggression and Soviet expansionism that could, that we had to push back on. And now we're, I think, at the start of a new Cold War. And uh, the new Berlin is Hong Kong. You know, this is really where we are. Where we, You know, the first Cold War with the Soviet Union started with a battle over the freedom of a city. And now we have a battle. We, have, we are having a battle over the freedom of Hong Kong. And it's the flashpoint that I think is heading us down into a path because the Chinese Communist Party is emboldened, aggressive, expansionist, and uh, they're afraid of their own people, just like the Soviet Union was. And so they have to lash out at a foreign enemy in order to justify their totalitarian reign. I just hope we do it smart. You know, all of the things that Senator... Well, we won the first one, so we got a good playbook, right? (laughs) Well, it took us 70 years, but... We've never had an adversary like China. We've never had confronted a country of 1.4 billion people with a ton of money and an impressive military that's already made huge inroads. You know, this is not going to be one of those things where we force everybody to choose between the United States and China because it's going to be really hard. And getting this right, doing it intelligently, and I think also giving China options to make good choices is going to be a, a big part of that. One thing I really like is the education part. 
I like what Cruz talked about, not just because he talked about it, you know, my horrible secret, which is that I love Tom Cruise. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. And I love Top Gun. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. Write to your congressman if you disagree with me. But that the American people don't realize how aggressively they're being propagandized without even seeing it, whether it's in their public schools or it's on their radios or it's in movies. Not to intentionally use the phrase, we're kowtowing to China all the time when it comes to entertainment because, and this is the big difference we'll have with the Soviet Union, is I wouldn't say they're an economic powerhouse, but they have a valuable economy. Nobody really was dying to invest in the Soviet Union or do business with the Soviet Union. Plus, they want um, to sell tickets. It's 1.4 billion people with some money to buy stuff, and people want to sell to them. No, that's exactly right. In fact, a lot of these movies, they can't succeed simply on Western box offices. They have to do well in China in order to recoup the money. So, But, you know, again, this is what totalitarian regimes do all the time, which is they force you to censor yourself. And uh, we can't allow that. So anyway, I don't want to go down too far down this path because I think we should do a whole podcast on whether we're in a cold war with China at some point. In the meantime, we're so grateful to all of you for being here with us. Thank you. Stay safe out there. Stay safe at home. God, just stay safe. Summer is coming. Hopefully we will we will have a little bit of a respite for the much, much beleaguered American people. the next people. plague will arrive. I know. Locusts. Folks. Don't hesitate to reach out with ideas, compliments, insults for Mark. Thanks for being with us. Take care. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.